Hi, everybody. Welcome to Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornelians. I'm Alex Zalbin, your host for this week, Class of 99. A couple of little plugs before we get into it. Check out the website, alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni. And the Facebook page, which is Cornell Young Alumni Programs. Uh, there's a bunch of upcoming events. There's news, volunteer opportunities, and more. But let's get into it. I'm very excited about our guest that is going to be on the show this week. Uh, her name is Marissa Cohen. She is class of 06. Dr. Marissa T. Cohen, I don't want to forget the doctor part, is an associate professor of psychology and co-founder of the Self-Awareness and Bonding Lab at St. Francis College in Brooklyn. Did I get that all right? Yes. All right. <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show, and thank you so much for chatting about Cornell. Uh, I'm going to ask a very general question just to start off, because I sure. always find this... This is the first thing that I always ask somebody when I meet a fellow Cornell alumni. What is your first memory of Cornell? Oh, my first memory of Cornell, probably the welcome barbecue for the freshmen Mm -hmm. on North Campus. And I, I moved into the townhouses and I remember just making a lot of my friends on the way to that barbecue. Yeah. You were, um, correct me if I'm wrong about my Cornell history. So I was on West Campus. You were on North Campus. North Campus. Was that when everybody was moved to North Campus? Yes. Yes. We just had the choice of North Campus and I picked the townhouses and actually moved in with one of my friends from high school. Oh, nice. So So what did you study at Cornell? What was your course of study there? Um, I changed quite a bit. (laughs) So I started out as a biology major and I wound up graduating with a degree in biology and society and I had a minor in education. Hmm. So uh, is it fair to say you're kind of uh, covering relationship studies at this point? Is that too general? Is that wrong? At this point, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I do. Okay. Was that anything that you started to touch on at Cornell or did it happen later? Not at all. Um, My path to where I am now kind of took a few unexpected turns, but all good things. Um, When I started Cornell, my plan was originally to be a microbiologist. I was very, very into research, um, still into research, but uh, I knew I was going to get my PhD. Didn't know that I was going to go into teaching and had no idea that I was going to go into relationships. I started taking a bunch of classes that were crossing over with human development and psychology and started to fall in love with it. And being an education minor, I started TAing some classes. Mm-hmm. So uh, at Cornell, I believe I TAed uh, the art of teaching and intro to oral communications. And at that point, I was like, I want to teach. Like this is this is what I want to do. So I went to pursue a PhD in educational psychology. So what? In particular, what was it about those TAing assignments that really drew you to teaching? What was exciting for you? The power. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it was just, it kind of like challenged my beliefs about what teaching really is. Because I was under the impression like you're kind of transmitting knowledge to the students, but it was really kind of this two-way relationship where I was learning just as much from the students as they were from me. And um, it was just something that I really wanted to explore further. So uh, talk me through, you graduated from Cornell. What was your first job out of college? I went straight into my PhD program. Oh, wow. Um, So I went for a PhD in educational psychology, and I figured that would be like a nice way to kind of marry some of the human development courses that I was taking with uh, the education minor. And then at that point, I was doing a lot of work in um, K through 12 classrooms, and I was specifically focusing on vocabulary development for early science learners. Hmm. So this was going to be my career. I was going to be developing 
interventions for uh, teaching a vocabulary. And then um, in 2012, I wound up taking a course for, through Cornell Adult University, the Human Bonding course with Cindy Hazan. Fell in love with that material started to bring a couple of those examples into the classes that I was teaching at St. Francis, and I noticed that every time I began to talk about relationships, students started to perk up. And I was like, if I could find any buy-in to research methods and statistics, I'm gonna take it. So I started infusing more and more relationship science into my classes, and now that's pretty much all I do. Wow. So it's kind of an atypical route for someone that has a PhD, because you usually find your really like narrow area of research and follow it through, and I don't do education research anymore. Was there some, was there one particular lesson? Was there one particular spark, something that drew you in particular to the, I keep calling them relationship sciences, but uh, that drew you to that, that uh, I know you're saying that you taught the students that they sparked to it, but what about you? So um, I've always been a researcher at heart and that started like back at Cornell with my whole desire to be a microbiologist. And I really loved with relationship science how you can kind of take the research and apply it to your everyday life. So I think one of the, the researchers that stood out to me early on was John Gottman, who is a researcher out of the University of Seattle in Washington. And he does something known as the Four Horsemen of the Dating Apocalypse, <laughs> which is pretty much um, what changes a fight, because we all fight, we all get into conflict, but really what makes conflict problematic. So it's not what you fight about, but it's how you fight. So it's basically the uh, the presence of criticism, contempt, stonewalling, and um, displacement. That's the wrong last one, but it'll come to me. <laughs> but um, it's basically you're able to apply the science that he studied in his lab to your everyday life and then how you interact with others. Defensiveness. Defensiveness was my fourth one. There so you go. can you, not to get too much into it, yeah. but I am super curious, how can you break those down for us? What do each of those mean? Yeah, now that I remember defensiveness yeah, is a word. I'm, I feel we more did. comfortable in it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so contempt is basically uh, what you would throw out in a fight, um, like you're such a slob, basically saying something nasty. And people will employ it because when you're in the middle of a fight, it doesn't matter what it is, it's like a quick way to kind of like go for the jugular and win. Um, the problem is, as long after the fight happens, the person's remembering what you said, you're such a slob, and they're not really remembering the fact that you made up from the fight. So words stick and they hurt. Um, then you have uh, criticism, contempt. Contempt is basically criticism coming from a place of superiority. So you're essentially looking down on the other person and you're making yourself seem better. So saying something like, you act so much like your mother, or in a derogatory term, something that's like meant to hurt, um, that's extremely problematic. Uh, defensiveness is when you fail, your, fail to take ownership of what you actually did wrong. So if you're running late in the morning, um, and uh, you leave the dishes in the sink and your partner yells at you and says, um, can you please not leave the dishes in the sink? And instead of saying, you're right, I'm sorry, you kind of throw back, well, you took forever getting ready in the bathroom this morning. So that may be true, but you didn't take ownership for what you did wrong. And finally, stonewalling, which is my favorite. Um, when you are in school, people tend to teach the fight or flight response, but it's actually fight, flight, or flood. And flood is when you just completely shut down. 80% of the time, it's the males because there's this demand withdraw pattern in argument. Um, and it's the point when they just can't process any more information. So the couple's fighting. The woman is maybe typically it's the woman who might be repeating herself a lot. And the man is just kind of standing there stone faced, uh, 
nothing else is productive in this argument anymore. So the antidote to that is pretty much just taking a 20 minute break and then rejoining the conversation when it's more productive after you've had a chance to kind of like get your energy level down. It's interesting that you started with fighting. Do you think that's important for a healthy relationship? Yes. People ask me that all the time. Uh, people come to my guest lectures and they tell me, well, my boyfriend and I, my husband and I, my partner and I, we never fight. And I say, are you sure? Like, it's okay. You could be open about it. If you don't fight, chances are you're probably not being very honest. Um, you're two different people. You grew up in different households. You have different beliefs, views of the world. So you're going to fight. You're going to have difference of opinions about something. And if you are comfortable enough in your relationship to share them, then you'll clash. So if you're not fighting, you're probably holding something back. And that's not good for communication. This is a very general question, but clearly you're taking science and applying it to something that is an emotional pursuit. It, can you completely quantify something like that or no, you can't? No, definitely not. Um, and I don't think you'd want to because I think that would take some of the magic out of it. Um, a lot of people, you know, take issue with relationship science because they're like, why are you trying to study the magic that is love? Um, I think it's neat to try to study it and to try to quantify it as best as you can. Uh, just quick example with like online dating algorithms, and I'm a big proponent of online dating. I used it. I met my husband off of it, full disclosure, um, this, although this is not an ad for online dating. Um, Wait, which service? Maybe we can get some money off of it. <laughs> J-Date. Ooh, all right. Um, Bring in yeah, that call money. me. Um, but basically, you know, they have these amazing algorithms. And, you know, websites like OkCupid, it was built by a mathematician, Christian Rudder, out of Harvard, um, where they are able to match people based upon compatibility using these advanced algorithms. But it's not going to, and study after study shows, it's not going to predict with complete accuracy relationship success because there's still something that you just can't quantify. And it's that spark, it's that chemistry that you could really only get through the physical interact, like through physical presence in front of the other person, that first interaction. To follow this down that road a little bit, is there a way of making those algorithms smarter, of getting close to 100%, or is that just impossible? I don't think you're ever going to be able to completely quantify it. Um, I think that they're building really good algorithms. Um, you know, I've looked into like what OkCupid does, and they're completely transparent, and they, they uh, share all of their data that they collect from all of their users. Um, and I think that there are a lot of really interesting swipe-based and other matching sites out there that are looking at ways to kind of tap into your personality, and they're doing a good job of it. They just can't get to all of it. Let's get back to you for a moment. So you found that these students were really sparking to this. They were very excited about it. You were clearly excited about it as well. How did it end up becoming your full-time career? <laughs> um, so I teach research methods, I teach experimental psychology, and I have taught statistics in the past. And um, for a lot of psychology students at any school, these are usually the courses that you have to take but want to avoid at all costs. So I kind of walk into my classroom already knowing that I'm like combating people's fears, whether it's of math, of doing research, um, anything of that nature. 
And um, when I started to kind of infuse a relationship science into it, I noticed that they like their ears perked out. They were more interested. They would be more likely to bring in stories from their own personal lives. And once you kind of resonate, like if the material resonates for you, then you're going to remember it and you're going to be able to use it later. So I was like, all right, here, like I've struck gold. Let's do this. Um, at this point, I was still still doing educational psychology research and my office mate is a social psychologist. So we figured, all right, let me just like dip my toes into the relationship science pool a little bit. So we looked for an easy study that kind of crossed both disciplines. So the first academic study I did in the area of relationships was looking at how important education level is when pursuing a potential match. So it kind of education, social psychology, we got it. Um, at that point, students started asking to volunteer and to do independent studies with us. And we're like, okay, we have something. So we went to the administration and we basically just started a lab. And it officially started in fall 2014, the Self-Awareness and Bonding Lab. Uh, I'm no scientist. What does it mean when you set up a lab? Um, so we now have a physical space. We technically don't always need physical space. Um, it was kind of like our official, we had an official launch party on Valentine's Day, very appropriate. <laughs> um, and it was, you know, we do a lot of our research online. So we do survey monkey surveys. Um, we go out into the community. We still do old school paper surveys. Um, and we do some experimental and qualitative work where we'll bring people into our offices. But we don't technically need a lot of space. It was just we started with weekly research meetings with uh, our research associates or our students. Um, we got a bigger presence and we started kind of pretty much just um, presenting our work at local conferences. Is there a bigger project or projects you're working on right now, or is it just general study of relationship sciences? So what I really like about our lab is it's really not um, PI or like principal investigator dictated. So if a student has an interest, and a lot of times they'll pick up on something from their own life, for example, um, I had a former student who was in a long-distance relationship for very, very many years, so she wanted to do a study about long-distance relationships. She's getting married this summer, so that's very exciting. Um, no longer in a long-distance relationship with him. Um, so pretty much we allow students to approach us with whatever they find interesting, and we will work with them to build that into a study based upon, you know, are they doing it for independent study? Are they doing it as their senior thesis? Is it an honors class? And we kind of tailor it based upon their interests. Um, as far as my personal research, I have two lines of research. One is on perceptions of first date success. So how do you know if it's going well and what signals can you send to your partner to let them know that you're interested? And I also do work on consensual non-monogamy. Hmm. Let's talk about the first one yeah. first. Uh, talk me through that. What are the signs that a first date is going well? <laughs> so um, I actually did a really early study looking at 30 different behaviors that can happen either during or shortly thereafter the first date to kind of um, gauge what information is this signaling to your partner? So for example, if you go in for a hug versus if you go in for a handshake, if you call the person a day later or wait a couple of days before calling them or never calling them again. Um, is that a good sign or a bad sign? Bad sign, never calling them again? Probably. Really? Okay. Well, right. what's interesting, <laughs> not good, but men don't read it as not good. Really? Yes. Um, I have a couple of theories about that, which I can get to in a moment, but what we tend to see from the research is that women are the much more selective sex. Um, my first study was done predominantly on heterosexual couples, so I'm going to just kind of speak about it in those terms. Um, they read into a lot of behaviors. 
something that signals the date is going well is when the conversation actually revolves around the female. Um, we also tend to fall into very gender stereotypical patterns in early dating experiences. So women are kind of looking for the men to pay. Interestingly, the men are looking for the women to offer to pay, but not to actually pay, hmm. but to offer. So it falls into like very like what you'd imagine 1950s dating patterns. Um, women also read a lot into the date in terms of what's negative. So they want the men to be the initiators. They want the men to suggest extending the date. Like we just had dinner. Let's maybe go for a walk or grab dessert. They want men to follow up right away to schedule the second date. Um, they also want men to play more of like a chivalrous role. Um, again, very gender stereotypical. Men actually, in all of the 30 behaviors that I listed in my first study, and one of them, like I mentioned before, was never calls you again. Um, men actually never read into that as being a negative sign. What else could it be? <laughs> um, I have two interpretations. I'm doing a qualitative study now to kind of find out what it actually is. Um, on the one hand, and what my students like to say is blissful ignorance, <laughs> where they're just not reading into the signs like she never calls you, but oh, she still must like me. But I actually think that it's a much more healthier attitude. Um, a lot of my sample were, was between the ages of 18 and 24 four years old. And that's a sample that's predominantly now like online dating. So when you're online dating, the expectation is basically that you're dating multiple people at any given time. So perhaps they just developed the healthier attitude of she didn't call me. It doesn't mean anything about me. She's not signaling she didn't like me, but maybe she's just two more dates in with someone else. So they're not taking it as personally. That's what I would like to believe it is, which I think is a very healthy attitude to adopt. You touched on this a little bit, but how much of these behaviors would you say are cultural versus psychological? Or is it a mix of both always? Um, we had, I mean, the sample was predominantly American, but it was ethnically very mixed. So as far as that particular study, it kind of like crossed the board. Um, but I do tend to think that like cross-culturally, we are affected by like our dating norms and what's expected of us, you know, especially if you're like an individualist versus a collectivist culture. Has there been any interest on either your half or on the university's half to expand it internationally and all to check out how it works in other countries? I would love to. Um, I've actually been uh, contacted by researchers in Russia before um, that were interested in doing something. They were planning on trying to secure a Fulbright. Um, it actually never wound up happening. But um, I am planning on staying in touch to kind of see like what we can do. Um, and also one of my colleagues is actually a cross-cultural psychologist. So I always just kind of stop by. He, he specifically focuses more on like China, but I will talk to him about like Asian cultures and relationships. And if there's a study that could come out of that, I'm so into it. Cool. Let's talk about the other one. Consensual non-monogamy, yes. is that the phrase that mm -hmm. you use? Um, so explain what that means. So consensual non-monogamy is ethical non-monogamy. So this is not infidelity. This is people who are um, either you know, having sex with more than one person or in love with more than one person. Um, the term is pretty poorly defined because different researchers use it differently. Uh, the way that I use it is consensual non-monogamy is a broad umbrella term. And then under that, you have open relationships. Some people use those terms interchangeably. 
open relationships, you are usually having um, sexual relationships with people other than your primary partner or doesn't necessarily need to be hierarchical, but your partner. Um, and polyamory, which is falling in love with uh, more than one person. Now, I know from watching classic movies like Friends with Benefits and other movies that, of course, that doesn't work. But it sounds like probably from your research, you found maybe a slightly different answer. Yes. Um, there is no evidence to suggest that people who are in open relationships um, are any less satisfied than people who are in traditional non-monogamous relationships. Um, the issue is that a lot of times when you see consensual non-monogamy portrayed in the media, um, it's coming from a heteronormative perspective and a mononormative perspective, meaning relationships are between two people and often a man and a woman. And, um, you know, research is really trying to dip into, like, what are other relationship configurations? Also, a lot of times, it's usually a couple that starts out as monogamous. The relationship might not be working, and they pull, like, a Hail Mary at the end, and they're like, well, what if we let other people in? That's not consensual non-monogamy. Um, the open relationships that work the best are the ones where people enter into the relationship saying, I am looking for something open. Um, the benefits of being in non-monogamous relationships are that people, to make them work, you have to be incredibly open and honest with your partner. So they're often well-defined rules and they're constantly like talking and navigating. So they often will have a level of communication that other people might not have in their relationships. This ties back into what we were talking about much earlier, but it almost seems like it's trying to apply logic to something, again, that is an emotional pursuit. Yeah. How much... Can you actually have that mix there and how difficult it is, is it to reach that balance? Oh, it's really difficult. Um, even just doing basic survey uh, you know, research, you get people where there's going to be a response bias. People want to present themselves in the most positive light. Even if it's a completely anonymous survey, you'd be surprised. Um, you know, if I ever ask if I'm doing a study with college students, what's your GPI? It's amazing how many people report a 4.0. And I'm like, that's great. I hope that's true. Probably not the case. Um, you know, so there's there's different things that you can do. You could put questions in there that are kind of like reversed in their phrasing to kind of catch people that are responding in a certain way. Um, you do the best you can. But the most important thing about research is you acknowledge your limitations. Um, you can't gloss over them. Um, I'm very transparent with my research. Like, I focused on this particular sample of people, this age group. You know, go replicate it. I plan on replicating it as well because you don't want people to think that they could generalize your results to different populations that they may not be able to. Uh it, it strikes me that the two areas that we've talked about, one of them is confirming societal norms and the other one is challenging them. Is that on purpose? Um, I No, I don't think so, but that's really interesting. I never actually thought of it <laughs> that way. Um, I do a lot of research based upon my curiosities and my interests because um, I feel like that when I tend to do one study, I kind of go down that path for a while and I try to exhaust it as much as possible. So you're tied down or I tie myself down to a specific area for several years or that's a plan. Um, the perceptions of first date success just came out of like I was doing a lot of online dating and a lot of first dates and I was like, all right, let's see what's going on here with people other than myself. Like, let's not just make this anecdotal. Let's get some data. Um, as far as the open relationships, I had a friend who was in an open relationship. Um, and there's also this study that, not study, uh, a video 
that Dr. Hazan showed in her course that I took at Cornell um, called For Better or For Worse, which was a documentary from 1993. And um, I actually got a copy of it and I show it to my class as well, where they follow, I think it's five couples that have been married for 50 years or more. And one of them is like this amazing couple. They're in their 80s. And then all of a sudden, you know, at some point in the documentary, she says, my husband used to drop me off at my boyfriend's house on his way to his girlfriend's house, but we never once considered getting a divorce. And I feel like I was shocked the first time I watched that. My students are like, no, that's not possible. And I'm like, it is. Let's find out how. And that's kind of how I, I touched upon that area of research. When you're, uh, you specifically mentioned just your own life experiences and a friend's life experiences, given the course of study that you have, how much when people hear about it, do they end up putting it on you versus say, if you have somebody that I don't know, is studying cancer cells, they don't immediately assume, oh, you have cancer. So that's why you're studying that thing. But it seems like with relationship studies, uh, somebody might be more willing to say, oh, this is this is your thing, to put it on you rather than just right, the world. Right, right. Especially when people hear about consensual non-monogamy, that I do that kind of research, they assume I'm in a consensual non-monogamous relationship and they can make whatever assumption they want. If I was in a consensually monogamous relationship, I would strive for a very healthy, happy one. So um, I try to, it depends upon my audience. When I do guest lectures, people are very interested in my personal life. They're also extremely eager to share personal, personal details from their lives um, and kind of expect that I'm going to give them a quick fix with science on how to like solve their relationship woes. Um, when I teach, I keep all of my personal life out of it. I And it depends. Like I write, I blog a lot. Like I blog for Psychology Today. I write for the Long Island Weekly. Um, I keep my personal life to my non-academic blogs and I keep the research to my academic blogs. You could find it all out there, but I try not to mix the two intentionally. I was very curious, actually, that same sort of thing. There's the typical story of like you're at a party and somebody walks up to the doctor is like, oh, I have this mole. Can you check out this mole? Do people do the same thing with you <laughs> yes, with relationships? Yes, all the time. Um, you know, uh, I've done a couple of lectures at the Cornell Club. I do a lot of lectures in libraries at the Brooklyn Brainery. I'm going to be at the 92nd Street Y. And the first people, you know, I always open the floor for questions and I get some academic questions. But then when I'm done, I get people kind of make a beeline to the front and they're like, this is a problem I'm having with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or, you know, whoever, a coworker. Um, what can I say? What can I do? And, you know, I obviously give them the big disclaimer. I am not a clinician. Um... And I don't know the full story because there's three sides to every story. It's like your version, their version, and, you know, some, like the truth. And um, I can refer you to some research that I think will apply, but then how you're going to use that in your everyday life, that's up to you. Like, I can't tell you what to do. But I've had people where they're like, what should I say to get my ex back? Um, when should I propose? And I'm like, no, <laughs> like, not for me to tell you. <laughs> Uh, I do want to talk about, you have uh, two books that you one wrote? Book. One book. Well, one okay. book and a chapter in a book. Right. There you go. Uh, so the first one, uh, From First Kiss to Forever, A Scientific Approach to Love. Talk me through that. What's the idea of the yes. book? Yes. Um, so I wrote the book two years ago, and it's basically a collection of academic articles that kind of 
span across relationships. So from early relationships, children with their primary caregiver, uh, through finding mates, to making a relationship work, through things like infidelity and divorce, to remarriage and then bereavement at the end of life. Um, and I cover that using pop culture as a lens. So um, I talk a lot about what I think will kind of grab people in that might not be typically interested in academic research. So for example, um, I have an article about, um, you know, Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog and like why they famously broke up. Um, I touch on Bachelor in Paradise a lot because Ooh. even in these like ridiculous, but I love them, dating shows, they actually will uh, um, employ principles of relationship science quite a bit to create intimate relationships in a very short span of time. So I kind of try to bring the readers in. I'm a big fan of Seinfeld references. I do guest lectures and bring Seinfeld into the book a lot. And uh, I end every chapter with like take home tips and questions. So kind of it's self-help light kind of forcing you to think about the academics and how you can use them in a meaningful way uh not to focus in on the bachelor stuff full disclosure i've actually never watched any of the shows but i work full-time as managing editor at a place called decider where uh-huh. i write about tv all the time so i have to know everything about those shows <laughs> anyway ultimately do you think they're harmful or helpful for how people view relationships Oh, they're definitely not an accurate view of relationships. <laughs> and if people are modeling themselves, I actually don't watch The Bachelor, but I watch The Bachelor in Paradise. Like that was like perfect enough to just like draw me in. Um, it's like saying is a person's life like The Real Housewives. Like, no, this is like a very sometimes glamorous, sometimes not glamorous at all. But these are people put for the express purpose of like putting them in situations where they could fall in love or, you know, just quick sexual connection. Um, And it's definitely not how people should be judging their relationships. Media in general can be very, very problematic. Um, You know, not everything is going to be a flash mob that ends in a beautiful proposal. Mm -hmm. And even on social media, like hashtag relationship goals can be like extremely detrimental because people are presenting the best version of themselves when they choose what they're presenting. And on a lot of reality shows, it's whatever makes for good TV. Um, Enjoyable to watch, but not as a great model for your relationship. Well, for potential takeaway for any listeners then, what is a more positive way of portraying your own relationship online then? You don't have to. Don't worry. Like, don't worry about what other people think of your relationship. Worry about what's going on in your relationship. Um, Some research out there just show that the people who post less frequently online about their significant other are actually in happier relationships. Hmm. So if you're, you know, sitting on a couch next to your partner talking about how much you love your partner, instead of typing it into your status update, turn and tell them. That makes a lot of sense. (laughs) Uh, And then you mentioned you have a chapter in a book as well. Yes. Um, oh, actually, another Cornelian. Uh, the editor, Nava Silton, is the editor of the book. And it's a family dynamics, very long title. Um, but I have a chapter in it about um, consensual non-monogamy. But it just covers, you know, different areas of relationships. Cool. Uh, before we wrap up, what else do you want to plug? What else is 
should people know about you or check out about you? Um, if you're interested in finding out anything about my research or where I give guest lectures or anything relationship science related, you can um, go to my website, which is www.marissatcohen.com, and it's Marissa with one S. There's another Marissa Cohen, so don't go to her website, Yes, yes, and we actually get confused quite a bit. Um, She writes about pregnancy. So, like, in the realm of, like, what you would think I'd be writing about, so. Do you guys think you'll ever team up? I've actually never contacted her directly. Ooh, have, yeah, I know, right? I do pass on information to her. But, I mean, I pass, I tell people, you might be trying to reach this person instead, (laughs) but. Cool. Marissa, thank you so much for being on. It was a pleasure. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you. And you guys, thank you so much for listening to Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornelians. Again, if you want more information about the podcast or everything Young Alumni, go to alumni.cornell.edu slash young alumni. Also the Facebook page, Cornell Young Alumni Programs. There's events, news, volunteer opportunities, and more. And if you're listening to the podcast and like it, uh, please literally like it, leave a comment, subscribe, let people know about it on the platform of your choice. Thanks, guys. Music from Fresh from the Hill was written, produced, and recorded by Kia Albertson-Rogers, class of 2014. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu.